Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Where Liberty Dwells podcast. I'm your host, Vaughn Hilp. Firstly, did you not know about this episode right when it came out? Are you outraged that you didn't? Well, you should be because that's a very sad story. If you want to stay updated on every episode of the podcast, you should follow the show's Instagram at Where Liberty Dwells Podcast or follow the show on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Also, I'd like to announce that the Where Liberty Dwells website is now fully functional. The website will also be the home of brand new WLD articles as well. The first published article titled The Death Penalty Should Not Be Abolished is up now on the site at www.wherelibertydwells.com. Enjoy the show. I want gender equality. And when I say this, I mean equality of opportunity in every way. There should be no barriers to success for women that only exist because they are women and not due to any choices that they've made. When asked about why there was a gender parity or a 50-50 split of men and women in his cabinet, Justin Trudeau responded, because it's 2015. Well, now it's 2021 and Joe Biden has, quote, made a commitment during his campaign that he would work to be sure that his administration looks like the constituencies it serves, said Kelly Dittmar, the director of research at CAWP. I think what we're seeing in his cabinet is that he's gotten pretty close to making good on that promise, she said. And this is true. Just over half, 12 of the 23 members of Joe Biden's cabinet are women. But now let's pull back and see maybe the full applicant pool. In the 117th Congress, 27% of the elected officials are women. To generalize liberally, let's give it, say, a third of all political figures, both unelected and elected, are women because, of course, Congress is not the only pool of applicants for which you can make a cabinet member. Well, then, for Trudeau to explicitly or Biden to implicitly create a diverse cabinet for the sake of diversity... And 21st century nuance is wrong because their only metric for selection should be competence at the job that they're being selected for. For Biden to narrow the amount of applicants to 20% of the, or a third, say, of the whole applicant pool is off the bat providing an environment in which you are statistically very unlikely to pick the truly best candidate. That says nothing about the nature of these women in general. Obviously, to be In the cabinet, I'm sure you have to be extremely competent at the job you're being selected for. At least that is the goal. It is not a bad thing. In fact, it's a very good thing that over time, the people who elect our officials will realize that women are just as capable as men, if not more, for leading communities, states, and even the country, yes. Over time, the number of women in government should adjust roughly to this population distribution as people realize this. But Biden, Biden's just introducing these quotas to play a numbers game. I just watched The Wire. It's an HBO show from the early 2000s, one of the greatest TV shows I've ever seen. And one of the driving themes of the entire series is this idea of juking the stats. And that means that these high elected officials in the city of Baltimore, where the show takes place, will constantly forge numbers and statistical reports in order to make either the police department or votes you know, look good. And that's the problem. And that's the game that Biden's playing. 
Joe Biden cares so much about having half of his cabinet be women because he cares about campaign promises and good PR, not necessarily because he holds such egalitarian views. I mean, I'm sure he does want gender equality, but there's a reason that almost exactly half of his cabinet is women. The problem is that politicians are often inclined to do what is popular rather than what is most prudent. Biden does have a very lengthy agenda for women, in fact. Top of that list is to improve their economic security. Doing so first and foremost by, quote, fighting for equal pay. Now, this forces me to bring up the gender pay gap once more. You probably heard it a million times. Women earn 78%, 78 cents for every dollar that a man makes. Or 70, 78 to 80 is what I usually hear. And this, is, this stat has been ingrained in our minds at the forefront of this issue of the gender pay gap. In reality, that number fails to explain many things, but most importantly, that it is an average. It is an aggregate number. Across all occupations and all ages, women do in fact earn somewhere around 77 to 80 cents for every dollar that, a, that is earned by a man. However, it just isn't that simple. When controlled for occupational choice, time off for childcare, and a myriad of other variables, the gap is not so quickly explained as simply discrimination based on gender. Now, let's be clear. There is undoubtedly still discrimination in labor markets based on gender. In fact, there most likely always will be at least a little. But that actual discrimination, which should be fought at every turn, is just one of many variables that account for that 22 cent gap in wages by gender. There's a study done out of Germany called Reports from Personality, Ability, Marriage, and the Gender Wage Gap by Matthias Kolschen from the University of Erlangen, Nuremberg. And he reports that the distribution of the big five personality traits, which are extroversion, agreeableness, openness, conscientiousness, and neuroticism, can account for 11.1% of the gender wage gap. And this 11.1% this figure is pretty in line with other studies of the kind. Other studies have shown anywhere from 5 to up to 18%. And that's just one facet. This study also controls for what the academic community calls the marriage premium. The idea that men have a wage advantage and women have a wage penalty when married. While the reasons behind the premium are unclear, the study shows that when controlling for marriage, the wage gap almost halved. Now, for the big five personalities, let's start there. It's shown that the three that have there, there are three of these five personality traits that have a negative coefficient when correlated with wages, and that's openness neuroticism, but most statistically significant is agreeableness. Now, women tend to be more agreeable. When I say tend to, I mean in aggregate, around 60% of women are more agreeable than men, and 40% of men are more agreeable than women. That's not a very big difference. Obviously, a 60-40 split's not anything to write home about, but it is still a difference. When you go to the extreme now, you start to have a, a more significant impact. For example, if you just pick someone random off the street and if you were to bet on whether or not they were more or less agreeable and this person was a woman and you bet more agreeable, you'd be right 60% of the time. But now if you, if you had asked people on the street to identify the most disagreeable person in their life, almost every single time that person would be a man because taken at the extremes, this 60-40 split becomes much more significant. The most disagreeable person is usually going to be a man out of a group, and the most disagreeable or the most agreeable person is mostly going to be a woman in taken in groups. Now, for the marriage issue, it's very interesting. The marriage 
the marriage uh, premium almost halved, like I said before, it almost halved the gender pay gap. It accounts for about 50% of it in this study and others like it. And it has been identified that it truly is a difference. However, what's interesting is that we, these scientists do not yet understand, these social scientists do not yet understand what goes into that marriage premium and why it is that marriage causes that. There are hypotheses, but these are not confirmed or peer-reviewed hypotheses, but they nonetheless are hypotheses, and I will list them here. It's basically that when a man gets married, he tends to specialize further in his career in order to take care of his home and his family. And the hypothesis is that the women that get married tend to do the opposite. They tend to scale back on their career in order to uh, improve their home and to take care of the ch- of children. It's simple as that. And the fact is with children is that Childcare is also a huge predictor in terms of the wage. Many women who have kids simply are not going to choose to continue their career, and children are expensive. And we haven't yet really figured out as a society on how to deal with that. I mean, even if the woman who's having a child chooses to to pay some other woman or or man to do a lot of the early early childcare that needs to be done. You're still there. That's still a cost that has to be incurred and it is expensive. And we have not found a way as a society around that yet. Now, if you want to interject at this moment that it isn't women's biological nature and choices that led them to have this wage gap, rather, it's the culture and environment they are raised in. Well, this is a perfectly reasonable conclusion that I came to as well. However, if we look at the Scandinavian countries, those that have tried harder than anywhere in the world to both legislatively and culturally make the differences in the lives of men and women the smallest, there are some pretty interesting results. The Nordic gender equality paradox is the name for the odd lack of equality that the Nordic countries such as Norway, Sweden, Denmark, and Finland show despite maximal effort compared to the rest of the world to minimize these differences. Polls have shown consistently for decades that at least perceptually, gender equality is highest in these countries. Many have expanded welfare states and encouraged gender equal policies such as family as, as paid family leave. Yet recently, they have seen a plateau or even a reversal in gender equal metrics. The hypothesis is that when freedom of choice among the sexes are maximized, the biological differences in men and women shine the brightest. There is a significant controversy over this paradox, however, and even as of this recording, I am unsure as to how verified this gender paradox is. Many claim that although countries like Sweden have these gender-inclusive policies, there are many details among those policies that actually constrict women more than make them equal. The thing is, either way you look at the situation, the answer is to let men and women have the maximal freedom of choice they can when it comes to their careers and other aspects of their lives and use the government as a tool to eradicate true discriminatory practice. As Nima Sanandaji of CapEx.com said in her article on this very issue, Equalizing the opportunities of women and men through a free market and systems with limited taxation and government allows men and women to choose more freely. This seems to allow more rather than few women to reach the top, and that is the goal. The goal is to eventually get to the point where we have a society where simply being a man or a woman or any of these immutable characteristics have no bearing on how well or how how well off you can succeed. That should not be the case. However, we do not want to fall down the rabbit hole of making sure that the outcomes among these immutable characteristics groups, such as the outcomes for wage of men and women and race, are always the same because at the end of the day, 
people don't make the same decisions. And oftentimes, whether you are a man or a woman or of a different race influenced by your culture can influence those decisions you make. Make sure everybody has the same opportunities, but do not dictate the way they have to end up. Now, why does this all really matter, though? Why go after the misinformation spread by feminist movement by the feminist movement when the root issues they fight for, such as equal pay, are right and just? Well, it matters because if the cause of the is- of the issue of the pay gap is identified to be mostly or entirely discrimination, then the methods employed to fix this issue will be very different and misguided instead of looking at the multitude of variables attributable to the gap. Under no circumstances should we lead the narrative astray from real-world causes. Therefore, what are the solutions? What are ways our society can further fight the right way for equal pay? Well, first and foremost, our labor markets should be policed so that discrimination on gender is eradicated as best we can. And I mean pure discrimination based on immutable characteristics. For those who are looking for an example about the personalities traits say have more agreeable people take assertiveness training this is something i heard from dr jordan peterson who speaks a lot on this issue and he says that in his own clinical practice he has had multiple women who have taken a sort of assertiveness training and that it is proven that this 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 this, uh, psychological tool and program can effectively help raise your your wage and this is not just for women this is for for men or women However, if women tend to be more agreeable, then that could be a useful tool for more agreeable people, but including more agreeable women in order to raise their wage. And for the issue of marriage and childcare, encourage the conversation about the shared responsibility of childcare and home maintenance. It's the 21st century, as Justin Trudeau likes to say, it's 2015, now it's 2021. We can have conversations about shared parental leave when a child is born and the, the shared burden of, of, of child care in their early years. But the problem is, and I'm going to stress this very heavily, is that for those latter two, both the personalities and for the issue of marriage and child care, is I believe that it is in the best interest of the government to stay out of those decisions. Run campaigns, begin dialogues on these issues, but leave out legislation. One of the principal aspects of conservatism is, that, is the belief that the stroke of a pen does not change how people behave, and oftentimes could even have a reverse effect. I know it was a short episode, but I felt this one was important and wanted to get it out there. So with that, I'll see you next time. This has been Word Liberty Dwells Podcast. I'm your host, Vaughn Hill. (laughs) 